Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Kat, Jem, thank you both so much for coming on to Civic Tech Chat. Could you both uh, introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you do? Thanks, Ryan, so much for having us both on here. We're so excited to be here. My name's Jen Noina, and my background is in human-centered design. I've worn many hats throughout my career, so I've been a user researcher, design strategist, product designer, and most recently I was at the U.S. Digital Service for two and a half years as a product designer. I am currently at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. And I'm actually working on supporting the people in this space, so in the civic tech or gov tech or public interest tech space. Um, And I'm looking at things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and really trying to figure out how do we make sure that this industry that we're in doesn't turn into, you know, Silicon Valley tech, and we're more, we we can be as um, inclusive as possible. Thanks so much, Ryan. Um, it's great to be here with you and Jen today. My background is uh, primarily as a design researcher. I've been working in was working in private sector for more than fifteen years in places like Silicon Valley, in Seattle, in Boston, and um, working at, at big companies, little companies, hardware, software, all kinds of different things. It's been uh, kind of a mixed bag for me, but it has meant that I've gotten to do a lot of different kinds of things in my career. And that's always really fun to get to talk about. Most recently, I've been at the United States Digital Service, which is how Jen and I know each other. I started out in at the very end of 2016, I joined and was originally an, an individual contributor as a design researcher on the Defense Digital Service team. After that, I had the opportunity to step into a leadership position at USDS HQ as design director. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then during that time was responsible for doing a lot of staffing for our discovery sprints, which is one of the reasons that brought Jen and I to the conversations we started having that led into the work that we're gonna talk with you about today. Um, Most recently, I am now in the process of heading back over to the Defense Department as Director of Design Operations for a group inside um, Space Force, which is another really exciting opportunity because they are setting up, it's the first new military service in over 70 years. And so they're setting up a lot of, they have the opportunity to set up a lot of technical infrastructure differently than the way that the DoD has been doing things. Um, And so... I've been really enjoying that so far, but it's it's a very new thing for me right now, um, but it's super exciting. For each of you, what would you say is your personal why? That thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do what you do? Sure. Yeah, I think what has been really wonderful about finding a path into working inside civic tech is that... There's such a strong sense of mission, both for my personal self and the work that I'm doing and what drives me, as well as the people that I'm working with. And I think that, you know, getting up every day and just looking for opportunities to make things, systems, technology, experiences better for folks who um, are dependent on government systems or on government agencies to really 
give them the support that they need is something that it's, it feels really simplistic, but it's the thing that really helps me feel like I'm, I'm doing something and I'm accomplishing something at the end of every day. I echo a lot of what Kat says. For me, it's really at the core of it is making a difference. Um, I really, really care about helping others and contributing to society in some positive way. Um, one of my mottos is, you know, how can I make the how can I leave the world a better place? And the way that translates um, is. You know, that might be me being a supportive and reliable person to my friends and family and people who depend on me. Um, and professionally, it looks like how can I use the skills that I have um, for the greater good? Each of you has spent time both in the private and public sectors, which may differ in some interesting ways. As you think back on those experiences, what are some things that have stood out to you or surprised you? I think Kat sort of mentioned this a little bit in her personal why, the mission-driven aspect of it. And I would say there's, you know, I didn't really know what to expect coming into the public sector. Um, One of the things that has stood out to me the most is how mission-driven everyone is in this space. I think it's a very, like, infectious um, optimism, almost. And um, it's... It's really exhilarating, I think, being in this space and knowing that you're surrounded by other people who care just as much as you do. Um, I would also say the scale um, is one of the biggest differences. So similar to Kat, I also had a lot of experience in the private industry before I came into government. And, you know, the products that I was working on in the private industry or private sector were a lot smaller than I'm than the services and products I'm working on at government. And so um, I think as a designer, that complexity is so, so complicated and just such a fun thing to, to work on. Um, And then I think the last thing would be, I I think it's like this question that I, that's still unanswered for me. Um, When we're working in the public space, sometimes we have to make the decision between fixing the system and I mean like overall system, um, not like a technical system, versus fixing the symptoms. And I think that's something that I don't have an answer for yet, but you know, there are these large problems that we're seeing in society today. Um, inequality, um, you know, healthcare access, um, just like basic human rights. And it's really it's just kind of a great place to be because we get to tackle those issues. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Jen said about scale. The difference, you know, in working at technology companies, even ones that are, I mean, a lot of technology companies stay in, stay in startup mode for a long time. Um, and so you're working to your, everything's around a million, right? Like you're working towards your first million dollars, you're working for your, to your first million customers, you're working um, towards, you're building on top of a base uh, that starts pretty much at the at the zero scale. In the government, it's almost entirely opposite, and so you have that that play of scale where you're on day one on anything. Really, you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars involved. You're looking at hundreds of millions of people who are affected by these systems. 
your customer base is different. I'm using air quotes for that. In private sector, you're looking for customers who are going to see value in what you are offering and pay for the opportunity to use your service or your product or whatever it is. In government, a lot of times it's, I don't want to say it's the last resort, but oftentimes whatever the solution that is being provided is you're the only way that somebody can do that, right? Like there's, you can't file your taxes with some somebody that isn't the IRS, right? Like you have no choice but to interact with that system as a taxpayer. And so it's not only just the scale, but the idea of how you can meet the mission with so many different kinds of users and people who are coming from all different levels of technology experience, you can't really assume anything about who those who those users are going to be. And as a design researcher, that's really fun, right? Because it means that you get to go out and interact with lots of people. And even if you're making incremental changes for the better, you still get to see the impact that you're having. I think that's a little more challenging to do on the private sector side. Um, and I think the other thing that was, I think you asked what was surprising for me, what's been really surprising is how um, design curious a lot of the federal government is. I mean, a lot of time, we'll be talking a lot about federal government today. I think this is true for other aspects of government and other work that is happening in civic tech, but there is such a green field for design and, and for human-centered thinking. And everyone that I've had the pleasure of interacting with over the last four years is just super curious about how can we design better for the humans who are interacting with the systems that we're creating. Sometimes that's the systems, you know, it's somebody who's sitting in front of a keyboard who is then providing services to somebody who's sitting on the other side of that counter. And all of those people are humans that, you know, human-centered design needs to be applied for when you're working at the federal level. And that's a, that was a surprise to me, is just sort of how curious and how excited people were to, to talk about this stuff and to give it space in a way that in the private sector, I think a lot of times design fights for a seat at the table with um, engineering and other disciplines that are often a little bit more transparent about the impact that they are having for on behalf of a company. I think this is a good time for us to take a shift over to our, our main topic, which is something that I'm, I'm pretty excited to dig in with, e with each of you. Folks listening might not know that each of you were involved in the creation of a discovery sprint guide that's hosted on the United States Digital Service, uh, USDS, on their website. For folks that might not be familiar with what a discovery sprint is already, or maybe even a sprint as a concept, uh, could you talk us through what this is? Discovery sprints is something that I would say a lot of folks in the tech space have heard of before, or the term discovery. And so at the U.S. Digital Service, it was a pretty, we, we used it in a different way. Um, I would say that for us at the federal level, um, we were, you know, when, whenever we get invited to partner with an agency or a team um, on their problem, we would use Discovery Spence as a method, um, just a two to four week quick sprint for our teams to really dig into the agency, the team that's working with them, the people, the the landscape, the ecosystem, um, any of the root causes that 
might come out of that engagement um, and really try to understand the, the work that we're going to be supporting. Um, I want to iterate here that, you know, oftentimes at USDS, we would get invited to fix some sort of tech issue. And what we realize um, and what we all know in this space is that tech is usually the solution, but it's not normally the problem, right? And so it was mostly a way for us or Discovery Sprints was a way for us to really understand all right, here's the technology that we may be looking at, but what is all of the stuff around it um, that influences that technology? So the people and the processes and the culture. Yeah, I think um, I just pivot off a couple of things that you said, Jen, that the United States Digital Service is lucky enough to be funded with money that means that they can provide folks or resources to any project across the federal government. So we have um, a couple of different partner agencies, 18F being the one that the people on this podcast will probably be most likely familiar with. 18F is, is fee for service. So it's essentially like hiring a consultancy. So if an agency wants to, if an agency knows that they have something that they need work for, they can hi essentially hire they can hire out, so they can go through procurement and hire through contracting, or they can go to a group like 18F and pay for the services that 18F provides. For USDS, when we originally got set up, we were doing a lot of emergency responses. And so, you know, something would fall down in the middle of the night and we would send people to kind of go and figure out what that problem was. And there's a lot of kind of duct taping a bunch of servers back together. And that often was our first foray into understanding the needs of a particular agency or the things that were happening underneath the cover of darkness that were that were often the root causes of issues that were going wrong. And so that's kind of how we started is that we would go out, we would solve a complete, we would solve a quick technical problem. And then when we were talking with the stakeholders, we would get invited to kind of stay a little bit longer. And Discovery Sprints for us is a really great way to kind of do a quick investigation and just kind of see like, does this seem like a kind of thing that USDS could actually help with, right? Like, do we have the right skill sets on our in our group to be the people that are the right people to help them? And oftentimes, I would say 99% of the time, what one of the things, the deliverable that we produce beyond the act of going and go, doing a discovery sprint is a sprint report. And that sprint report lives with the agency, it belongs to them, and it has a series of recommendations and um, observations that we have made. And oftentimes that goes to their senior stakeholders. And then if work continues after that, either through USDS or through any other way, um, that report is, is kind of a... a a support system for kind of setting up the direct, the right direction to head. USDS isn't always the right people to, to try and, and resolve those. Sometimes we would say, look, you guys are doing exactly all the right things. Just keep doing them. And here's our third party report that says that you're doing all those things, you know, great. Sometimes what they would need is, is not the kind of support that the USDS could have good resources for, in which case we could say, this is what we recommend that you go and do. And then the third case is when um, it is a good match, in which case we start talking about like having a longer term engagement with that organization. 
um, to try and bring them different resources um, or a different perspective or the expertise that USDS has into that agency. For each of you, what do you think is the the why for, for putting together a guide like this? So when Kat and I first started, Kat mentioned that she was responsible for staffing a lot of these engagements. And I had, you know, at being at USDS, I had been in around been in and around um, Discovery Swims for a while. I had been on some, I had led um, a handful of others. And, you know, I we, we both got folks coming to us asking us for, you know, oh, how did you run this? How did you run that? And we realized, you know, we, we first started putting together this guide as something that internally we could use. Um, all the way down to the brass tacks of, you know, who should be on the team? Um, how do you start an engagement? Um, how do you write a sprint report? How do you conduct interviews? Who, who do you talk to when you go to an agency? And um, as we started putting all of our resources together and writing the guide, we realized that this, this guide we were writing could be very helpful for other teams just outside of USDS. Um, and discovery sprints are definitely a method that, you know, we find value in and we've seen other folks use it and also find value in it um, themselves. And um, so I thought that I think we both thought that it'd be really important for us to document, which is something that we could always do better on um, for other teams as best practices for, to them, for them to use themselves. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Jen said. I think in the early days, so USDS is about uh, seven years old right now. And in the early days of USDS, they did a lot of great documentation. So they wrote down what they were doing, why they were doing it, how they were doing it. And the landscape changes at USDS a lot because people come in on tours of duty. And so it's not the same people um, who are staying. And so how do you pass on the information that you're learning and the things that you are doing to the next generation of people who come after you. A lot of times right now, especially, I think it, this is true. This is definitely true for USDS. I think it's true for a lot of civic tech environments that a lot of that is just oral tradition, right? That you are on a sprint, you're on a discovery sprint with somebody else who's done a couple of discovery sprints before. And so you learn through the expertise of, you know, somebody who's done that before you, you get staffed on an, on an agency team and, and you learn about how that agency works a lot from the people that are, that you're partnered with on your team itself. And then over time you build up a set of expertise that essentially walks away with you when you leave. And so, you know, we knew that there was a need for us to have internal documentation. And I think Jen and I both like felt like we had done good work while we were at USDS, but this idea of like wanting to leave something behind for our other US future USDSers. And so that was that was a piece of it. I think the other piece is that we, when we talk to other civic tech groups, every civic tech group is, is struggling with a lot of the same core things, right? And trying to figure out how to how to do what they're doing in spaces that that often haven't in had teams like this or had people that um, have these different types of expertises. And so, especially when I was design director, we would talk to other organizations or leadership at other 
you know, at civic tech organizations or digital services all over the world. And everybody was like, what are, what are you guys doing? How did you solve this problem? Like, how are you thinking about this? Like, what is, how are you, um, you know, what are you doing and how are you doing it? And we were all doing that with each other all the time. And I think this is sort of our, um, our small gift back to that, um, that discipline or that group of folks who are, are trying to solve some of those same things or tackling some of those same issues. When we were having our uh, preparatory chat, uh, like that prior call, one of the things that came up is this notion that discovery should be thought of as a method, as a deliverable, and also as a process. Could we dig into and expand upon that, that notion a bit for folks listening? We mentioned that discovery sprints are typically two to four weeks of an engagement with a stakeholder. And so at the U.S. Digital Service, that would typically be at the federal level. And so when we first start, we typically would put together a team of a really small team, like four to five folks. Um, And we make sure that this team is a cross-functional team. There is, you know, someone who has a product management background. There's someone who has design and research as an experience, Um, someone who you know, is an engineer by trade, um, someone who has expertise in data and procurement. And we also make sure to staff the team with a lead. And so this um, the Sprint team lead is responsible for really the engagement with the stakeholders and um, really managing expectations of what to expect um, as they engage in this process with us. And so, you know, it's the discovery sprint is really quick. We go in and for two weeks, um, the team sits with the agency. You know, we try to get access to as many things as we can, um, systems, documents, people. And we, the entire team just, you know, spends a lot of time digging into documentation and interviewing stakeholders and interviewing users and interviewing um, everyone from leadership all the way to the folks, you know, typically like at a call center or something like that. And that being said, um, out of these two weeks, Kat mentioned that um, we typically result in a um, a sprint report and presentation. And so, um, you know, the two weeks for us is really for us to uncover all of the root causes and, um, you know, the understanding of an agency's problem. It's really not for us to say, hey, this is how you're going to fix it. We might have some ideas and we might provide some of those recommendations, but it really is to dig into, hey, you know, it might just, one of the things might be, you know, there's a person in this department and there's a person in this department and they might need the same data, but they're getting data from different sources, right? And so we might identify, um, because we do have access to, the entire um, ecosystem of the organization where someone else might not, um, we might be able to say, hey, you know, person A might just need to talk to person B um, as one of the things that we uncover. And so um, kind of setting that stage, um, when we think of discovery as a method and process, um, that's what I would typically say, right? Like it's this process that we go through to really, really understand the problem even before we um, start solutioning. 
And I think that that's key because I think in, in a lot of these spaces that we're in, um, folks already have an idea of what the answer might be, right? They might say, hey, we need a new database to do this thing. Um, and it, it might actually just end up being a communication problem, like in the situation that I outlined. Um, and so Discovery Sprint as like a method and a process is really um, to uncover, to really, really figure out what is that problem space that we're working within. What can be really nice about Discovery Sprints, and I think this is one of those things that it makes what we, makes this guide that we have written more applicable or adaptable for other organizations out, like beyond just people who are working at the federal level or beyond um, folks who are even working just in civic tech. I mean, I think the idea of a design sprint or a sprint zero has been around for a really long time. Um, in organizations that work inside Agile, the idea of a sprint is, is pretty common. Um, there are places inside the federal government that are doing waterfall or doing other kinds of development methods. And so the idea of a, of a sprint might be um, a little bit new to them, but one of the nice things about it being so quick in terms of an, as an experience is that it's pretty easy to get a yes to um, to try out doing a discovery sprint. And so as a deliverable, you know, I think, and Jen, you touched on this too, that like most of the folks who are working inside these federal agencies, they are the subject matter expert in their agency. They are the subject matter expert in their, um, in their end users or in the people who are on the receiving end of the services that are being provided. They know all of those things cold and, 201, they've probably had some group of people come in every couple of years that say, we're going to help you do things better, or we're going to help you, um, you know, change it up, or we're going to teach you a different method to do things. Um, and they are incredibly patient um, and are often willing to um, engage and to, to try to adopt these methods to see if they can um, result in a, a different approach or a, a different kind of solution that may not have been available to them prior. As a deliverable, what's nice about having an external third party come in, it's not so much about the expertise that we bring as it is just the opportunity to shake things up a little bit and to give the folks inside different organizations um, or different groups a voice. And so, you know, as I said, they're the experts. They know this stuff cold. They often have maybe been filing tickets or they have been, you know, writing or talking to the folks above them for a long time about whatever symptoms that they are seeing that might be causing larger issues. And for us to come in and just to get people into a room together and get folks um, explaining things to us as a third party can sometimes just help open up levels of communication or opportunities that have been there the whole time. Um, but this is just the catalyst to, to make that happen. And so I think like as a deliverable, it's the communication piece that supports and encourages and just gives the opportunity for that to happen in a way um, that is really useful. And you know, when it's done quickly, it can still instill a lot of opportunities for that to continue to happen long after we're not there anymore. One section of the report that 
uh, kind of stood out to me when I, when I was reading through it is the one that's titled House Prints Fail. It seems like this gives some sense of the things the team might seek to watch out for as they're going through their, their own sprint. And maybe often like kind of knowing like what things to watch out for is just as important as knowing like what are the good things to do. Um, are there any potential problems from that that kind of stick out to each of you that you'd like to talk about? I mean, I think what is what's interesting, I mean, Jen got to participate in a couple of different sprints, um, both within the agency that she was working at and then as um, cro- part of cross-agency work. Um, I got to see and staff a lot of different sprints um, during the time that I was at USDS. And there are definitely patterns that repeat themselves. And so this was, that section was an, was an effort for us to kind of pre-identify those things. I think what's crazy about a discovery sprint is that you're going in to discover. You don't always know what you're going to find and you don't always know um, what is going to be needed in terms of different skill sets. And you don't always know what, you know, what the environment is going to be like. And so there's, there are some things that you as the creator of a sprint team can control and there's a whole lot of stuff you can't. And because it's discovery, it's different every time. And so figuring out which things we could kind of distill down into good advice to give people was really challenging because we wanted to give enough information for people to make, to make it useful if they wanted to try using some of these methods. Um, but we didn't want to be so prescriptive that if you ran into something that wasn't on that list, that you wouldn't know what to do. And so I think that from a when and how sprints fail, we do see patterns. And I think um, that's something that we tried to raise up and you know, give some, some hints as, as to the kind of direction that those could be. The things to me that really stand out in this section um, would be you know, managing scope and managing expectations, right? So we have to always be realistic about, you know, for the most part, discovery sprints are only going to be two weeks. We really, really, I think it works so well because we time box it, right? So that's like the first takeaway for anyone who's thinking about doing a discovery sprint. Two weeks we find is like the sweet spot. You know, we've done sprints in the past that have been one week. We've done sprints that have been three or four weeks. And we find that two weeks isn't just enough time to spend the first week going really broad and uncovering all of the different rocks, um, talking to so many different people, and then spending the second week, you know, having the team decide, okay, we've got to go even broader or, you know, starting to zero in on a path and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to focus on this one rock we've uncovered because it seems like it's going to make the most impact for this space. And so scope is huge, right? There's, um, there's so many different opportunity areas to fix when we go into an agency or when we partner with anyone. And I think that even stakeholders sometimes will come to us and say, Hey, we want you to do this and this and this and this. And we realize it's only going to be five of us and we've got to be really realistic about what our North star is going to be. And so for me as a, you know, in the past, when I was a sprint team lead, it was always, at the end of every day, right, there's only 10 days, at the end of every day, syncing up with the team and understanding, all right, is our North Star still our North Star? And what I mean by North Star is the reason why we're here. Um, The problem that, you know, the general problem scope, is that still the thing that we feel is the right problem to focus on? Sometimes it changes mid-sprint through, 
But I think it's important for the team to really rally around what that scope is like. And then for the sprint team lead as well, as well as the other sprint team members to manage expectations of what that is. Um, like Kat mentioned before, you know, sometimes when we partner with an agency, it is a little bit daunting. It is a little bit scary for the folks that are, um, you know, see us. We're like kind of walking in and they're like, oh, what's going on? Who are these people? Um, and, you know, there's always this sort of connotation. And so it's so important for anyone who's doing a sprint to just recognize that, right? So they can start to mitigate that. Um, for me personally, and I think anyone who's ever done a sprint, we never want to be seen as an outsider coming in, um, telling what people to like, telling people what to do. And so um, making sure that whenever you're interacting with anyone, um, that you you exude the right um, values that you want to stand for. Um, and so for me, that always was, you know, be really humble, just curious, right? Um, and really just recognizing your privilege when you get to come into these spaces. And then I would say the last like tactical thing from like a logistical perspective is that, you know, because sprints are so short, these two week sprints, um, not having like fully dedicated team members is really tough, right? So for anyone who's thinking about doing this, um, just being aware that, hey, you know, we, we can only have like four to five people on the sprint. Let's make sure to have, let's make sure that everyone can be fully dedicated on the sprint. Um, it just becomes kind of a nightmare when you're trying to, you know, in one week, right, interview 40 different people and um, half of your team might have other meetings they have to go to. Um, so we found that, you know, if we're able to like put boundaries and time box this, um, sprints are much more successful. I think I'd add one more to that, just as that with that scope and the time, when you, when you are uncovering issues that you, it's really easy to jump into solutioning, right? It's really easy when you're starting to talk about people and you're like, oh, I know, I know a good answer for this, or I know how they could solve this problem. Um, or I've seen this before at another agency, and like I want, I want to, to, I want to help solve this problem that you know folks are facing. Staying in that, our point is discovery. Our point is to uncover these things. Our point is to write them down. Our point is to start the conversation within that agency about which things um, are going to be their priorities, and that's completely up to them when you start driving towards solutions too quickly as or at all as part of a discovery sprint, you tend to get really um, boxed in and those things tend to, to become larger than they might be in the whole ecosystem of just looking at all the different pieces that are getting put together because they are familiar or because you, you know what the answer might be for that particular one. Um, and so I think that that's another one that when we've seen, when we've seen teams struggle, it's because they are, they're trying to jump too quickly into to solving some of the things that they're uncovering. Related a bit to that, and as far as like, if you're taking a team who's done a sprint, and you're looking back, uh, they might go through an exercise called a retrospective, where they kind of go and try to evaluate what happened during their discovery sprint. I imagine the way one goes about facilitating that and, and how that's handled is, is really important. If there's someone out there listening, and they're going through this, and they're kind of looking for advice on how to go about that? What, what tips might y'all give someone like that? I think 
I definitely have a couple of tips off the top of the bat. Don't, don't skimp on doing a retrospective, um, especially if you've put together a team that hasn't worked together with um, each other very Like if you've brought people from different orientations to work together, it's really useful to have a retrospective because at least you're getting a sense of closure and you're sort of giving everybody the space to mark what they did to talk about it and then to go back to whatever it was that they were doing before. Um, so that part is really important. I think from a facilitation perspective, get a third party to come and facilitate the retrospective so that everybody who participated in the sprint can talk. It's really easy to say, oh, well, the sprint lead was leading, so the sprint lead can lead the facilitation, but that leaves out the you know incredibly robust feedback that the sprint lead might have to give. And so um, those are sort of the, the quick hits that I would give. When I have run sprint retrospectives in the past, I usually do 90, to, 90 minutes to 120, which seems like a really long time. Um, but taking the first 45 minutes to an hour, and I just ask the team to tell me the story of the sprint, right? What happened? What did you do? And then what did you do? And then what happened? And who did you talk to at this stage? And I will whiteboard the story that they're telling me um, in bullet points. And that's really great because there's no emotion involved. So if this was particularly stressful or if there was, um, if there were differing opinions on the team about what happened when or, or you know, how something was handled, you take all of that out. And so if people are just telling you the story, what happened? And then you take a break and then you come back and for the second piece, it's sort of talking through why, why those things, why do we think those things happened and taking time to say, okay, well, like this, like looking back, you can say, oh, this was a, this was a turning point. This was a pivotal turning point in the sprint. We didn't know it then because we didn't realize it because we were standing at a fork in the road. Now we can look back and we know that. And again, it takes some of the emotion out of the, you know, who said what, when, um, and it puts people into a more positive perspective of like, it happened the way that it happened. And so now we're reflecting back. And then I think the the last half an hour or so, I always like to be, you know, what advice would you give for the next team that is doing a sprint? So actually two things. One at USDS, what advice would you give if USDS continues to do work at this agency? What are the, what, are the, what things do people really need to know? And then the second piece is like, what is it that you learned about doing this sprint that is useful for other people? And so I had photographs, lots of photographs of whiteboards um, from having done these retrospectives when Jen and I started talking about writing um, this guide. And a lot of that feedback fed into um, what ultimately became this discovery guide. So where's like a retrospective, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at that. That's kind of like a norming activity that you sort of do at the end of an activity. And then maybe you end up kind of going on to another. But one thing I've picked up uh, through some of y'all's answers is that oftentimes, or maybe not often, but sometimes these teams are kind of new teams that are brought together. Maybe it's five people who haven't done a lot of work together previously. And in those situations, are there any kind of norming activities that y'all have experienced that like really kind of help that initial hump you have to get over in order to like work well cohesively? I remember the first sprint I led, um, everyone on my sprint team knew of each other, right? Like everyone knew that we all, you know, they knew what um, what discipline everyone was, um, but they had never worked with each other before. And I, as corny as this sounds, right? Like team building activities exist for a reason. 
And so um, I think that it's so important when you're doing this really intensive work in a short amount of time to build psychological safety for the team, right? To be vulnerable, to be honest, to to feel like they can really thrive and build trust with one another. And so the way I've done that in the past is, you know, we we do a sprint kickoff with the stakeholder. Um, and that's really to set the scope, um, give ourselves the chance to ask um, that stakeholder um, any questions we might have and set our expectations and their expectations for the engagement. And then we also make sure as a team internally to really just get to know one another. Um, so things like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Um, what are, you know, what's something that you really, really don't want to do. So don't ask me to do it on the sprint. <laughs> um, so I had a fo few folks that were like, I, I'm so bad at writing. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be good at writing the sprint report, but I'm so happy to help edit and revise and do grammar. Um, and so I think just building that trust within the team just by asking each other questions, getting to know each other. Um, and another key piece for that I found in norming is, um, is just bringing snacks. Um, <laughs> As silly as it might sound, like we had a designer on our team go to Trader Joe's and she bought, you know, $30 worth of snacks. And so we just always had snacks in our the space that we worked in um, and people could come in and, you know, like agency folks would come in and say, oh, can I get can I get an Oreo? Or I think they're like called Joe jo Oreo, jo Oreos <laughs> from Trader Joe's. Um, and we, we could like start a conversation that way. Right. Or, um, you know we need an afternoon pick me up and um, we, we'd have chips that we could munch on. Um, so just really being intentional about building a good positive culture and asking each team member to contribute to that as well as um, what, what's important to them really, um, really helps with that um, team building. Yeah. I think what the one thing that I would add that I've seen when teams really gel, I think one of the things, and it's you know hard to say this at month whatever we are in the midst of a global pandemic, um, is oftentimes you know one of USDS's core values is go where the work is, and a lot of times um, these agencies, a lot of agencies are located in DC, which is where the the core of USDS is, but a lot of times sprints involved going out on the road to talk to external stakeholders. Um, of various types and kinds. And so the act of traveling together with a team is a real uniting force, right? Like the, even just figuring out who's going where, when, and, and the opportunity to have dinner together at the end of the day, after a long day of, of user interviews um, or stakeholder interviews is something that can really um, pull a team together. And sometimes when teams don't travel, it's, it becomes, it's a little harder to kind of create that that space for a team to be all kind of all in the same way that you are if you're working out of a hotel lobby together, starting to write the beginning of the, the report. Um, and so that's, it's something to maybe aspire to, even though that's, it's not something we can actually do right now as much. You know, Kat, that is a, a great segue to the, the very next question I had, your mention of that principle about going where the work is. 
you know, as you mentioned at the end of your answer there, it's, it's a little, it's a little harder to do that now. You know, we're kind of in a position where for folks safety, we kind of have to work at a distance, do things over distributed technologies. Um, it, as you've kind of like seen folks trying to kind of still get to that same goal with these different tools, uh, how have those folks been kind of like working around the pandemic for, for lack of a better way to put it? You know, when we first started writing the guide, we didn't have a remote section um, because it was sort of pre or very beginning stages of the pandemic. And so at a certain point we were like, oh, we really, if we're going to make this useful for people who are living in the now, then we can't talk about it. as sort of aspirationally. We need to talk about the way that, the, that things really are. I think one of the things that has been surprisingly smooth from a running discovery sprints at the federal level is that so many of our federal partners are also doing telework right now or working remotely. And so when a situation when everyone is remote, it's a different kind of experience because you're all having, you know, it's not, it's not great. It's not ideal. You miss a lot of the surrounding environment of what you would see when you were going to somebody's, you know, place of work and interacting with them. Um, you know, as a researcher, you always want to do that, right? Because you get to see like, what are the posters that you have on the wall? And what are, what does this post-it mean? And, you know, why do you have three monitors? And, you know, kind of talk me through what it looks like to be you at your desk. You miss some of those things. But during this past year, I think, because everybody has been remote, it's just sort of, we're all in the same boat. And that has enabled us to sort of get into the core of what people's paths or roles or issues or the things that they're dealing with, because the the things that we are looking to discover all still exist, even in a remote space. Yeah, I think that's a great overview, Kat. For me, it does, it is a little bit harder because um, those water cooler conversations are so key. Just, you know, seeing something and then just following up on those things. And so the way I've overcome this is kind of using like a chain reaction type of thing where, you know, we identify a handful of folks that we might want to talk to first, um, that like stakeholders or leadership might say, oh, these are, you know, the people that are involved in this project. They're the, a good place to start. And from there, you know, as a researcher, it's important to build trust um, and I usually do that through like jokes and humor. Um, I feel like, especially now, um, it's hard because we are living in a pandemic and it is really stressful. Um, and so as much as I can, um, just kind of bringing in some playfulness into the space that we're in um, really like breaks down those walls. And um, I always make sure that whenever I'm talking to um, anyone to, to make sure that like I'm, you know, respectful and um, building that trust, so they can really get the value or understand. Um, oh, you know, like this team is here to help us, right? And like we, um, like there's a lot of value in chatting with them. And so, kind of using that chain reaction metaphor, right? Like having that conversation and then asking simply like anyone else we should talk to. Um, and more often than not, if those, you know, if you've been a good interviewer, if you've, you know, been a good human and like really welcoming of that person, um, 
that person's going to say, oh my gosh, you should talk to Bob, you should talk to Paul, you should talk to Gloria, right? Like, it kind of just expands that way. And so um, I think we've had to work a lot harder to reach across the aisle during this time. Um, But like Kat said, because everyone's operating in this remote way, it has become the norm to a certain extent. And, um, you know, anyway, you can kind of stand out when you're talking to the person, um, the better. So for me, like I said, it's like joking around and like that humor of like um, bringing our personal selves into this work a little bit more um, and not not saying like, oh, this is just professional me. Like I can be both in this space and still um, do really good work. As both of you kind of think back on your time uh, doing this sort of work, are there any anecdotes that stick out to you that you might be willing to share, whether it's something that like taught you a lesson about the process, something you thought was like particularly successful, or, or maybe the opposite, something that didn't go so well that folks might want to watch out for? Uh, do either of you have anything like that you'd like to, uh, like to share with folks? I'm not sure if this is necessarily an anecdote, but, um, you know, I've been on a handful of sprints and those sprints have kind of had very, very different outcomes. So, you know, one of the sprints I was on, um, we had identified this huge chunk of an issue um, for the agency we worked with. Um, And at the end of the day, that agency was really only interested in doing like a small piece of that work. Um, And, you know, that was to us like a really great opportunity to start engaging with that agency more. Um, And so, you know, sometimes folks might think, oh, we're going to do this this discovery sprint and it's going to be this huge, big outcome. But like Kat said, it's a relationship with the agency and with the stakeholder. Um, And so sometimes it might just be a smaller piece. And sometimes, um, you know, it might not be a piece at all, right? Like you hand the report in and it gets put on someone's desk somewhere. And and that's totally fine. We've had, um, we've also had instances where, you know, a team did a discovery sprint um, two years ago, right, at an agency. And then that agency stumbles across this sprint report two years later and is like, hey, there's some pretty good points here. Um, Should we reach out to U.S. Digital Service and get them to chat with us um, and like start an engagement with them? And so I think my anecdote um, or like my kind of lesson learned through this experience has always been, um, we're really planting the seeds, right? Um, we never know what environment we're going to step into. And so for me, discovery sprints are a really good way to help an agency understand and define their problem. And, um, and then whatever comes out of that is, is really sort of just dependent on that environment. And so sometimes it might be the best time to undergo that. Sometimes it's going to be a small piece of it. And other times it might be two years later, um, but it's still work that's worth doing um, and work that's worth exploring. Yeah, I think when we were having our pre-conversation for this, you had asked Ryan for some examples. I think it's hard for us to give examples because that work belongs to the agency and it's, you know, sort of proprietary for them. Um, and as well as like whatever they decide to do or not do, um, 
given the outcomes of, of any particular report. But I've been thinking about it since you asked, and I think I can tell a little bit of a, of a story about a sprint that I um, personally was part of where we were invited into an agency that was having um, the, the problem that they had identified. And this is something I think that we didn't really touch on very much um, before now in this conversation, but a lot of times a problem has been identified that we are asked to come in and look at. And it's, that's not always the root cause and so as a sprint team, it's a little bit of a delicate dance because like you want, you want to look at deeply into whatever it is that you have been asked to go and look at. But if you discover other things, you need to have enough space and enough trust with the stakeholders to be able to say, you can solve this thing, but you might want to spend some time or effort solving this other thing first because you may continue to have this, this issue um, or this, this issue isn't... Um, is being caused by something else that is a little bit left field. And so just to, to kind of give an example of that, I worked on a, a discovery sprint where we um, were talking to an agency that had call centers that were overwhelmed. And so lots of people calling in, the call volume super high, people waiting on hold for a long time. And this is a, an agency that was providing benefits that folks were entitled to. Um, but that could be kind of confusing to navigate. And so they said, you know, our call centers are incredibly busy. We're trying to figure out like what to do about this. And when we went in and talked to the call centers, the call centers were very busy. We got to sit down on some calls and we got to talk with the operators and we got to talk with the stakeholders and we got to talk with the IT folks and and everybody who was doing their absolute darnness to make sure that the that the system was um, working as well as it could be. But come to find out that the reason that a lot of people were calling in and waiting on hold and the call centers were overwhelmed is that they had attempted to do whatever they were doing um, by going to the website first. And in order to make the changes that they use the website as a service as opposed to calling in and talking to someone, they um, they needed to input a username and a password. And if you forgot your password, I, I may be misremembering this, but if you forgot your password, there wasn't an easy way to change it. And so that's why people were calling. So you have lots of people in, you know, calling this call center to get services. And then you have a whole lot of other people who are calling in because they can't change their password themselves on the website. And this was something that people didn't do on a regular basis. And they needed, but the website required them to be changing their password every 90 days. And so this was sort of like this self-fulfilling problem, right? It didn't matter how many people were calling. There were always going to be people waiting on hold because it was the, the people who were responsible for solving the problem on the, on the website and the people who were solving, you know, their set of problems on the call center side reported to different silos and it was like different infrastructure. And so we the website folks weren't in the purview of the scope of what we were there to look at, but we had, you know, the immense privilege and ability to be able to go to, you know, several layers higher when we were delivering our report to say, you know, what you really need is probably a program manager that's looking at all the different ways that you are providing service. 
to these folks. And you know, our advice in our report is you put one person in charge who has both the responsibility and also the authority to kind of look at these different pieces as a whole instead of looking at them at separate parts. And oftentimes, you know, everybody's doing their best to solve their issues, but there is there's systemic things that are connected that are hard to see if you're in the throes of, you know, managing a call center that's overwhelmed all day, every day. And so a lot of times the outcomes that we come up with are just bringing a different perspective, right? They're, they're not, it's not, um, it's not that we are bringing anything different to the table ex- with the exception of a different perspective. And so I think that when we're talking about how other audiences or how other groups could adopt doing discovery sprints. Like, could you do your own discovery sprint for your own team? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's useful when you can have a third party and a fresh set of eyes. Um, But if you can't do that, I think sometimes just taking that time to look at a problem from end to end or to look at what the root causes of, of some of the things that you're struggling with are you can get pretty far that way. And so I don't, I don't want anybody to feel discouraged about trying this themselves if they're listening to this and trying to figure out like, how do I take what is here and do something to help my own environment learn or be able to run a discovery sprint. A tradition we have on Civic Tech Chat is that we like to leave some space at the end for our guests to give us an idea of what we, they'd like us to leave the conversation thinking about. So for each of you and this conversation we've had today, what would those concluding thoughts be? So when we first started thinking about how to reach a broader audience with writing this discovery guide, we were really unsure how people were going to be able to use it. And so we did as much as we could to write for as broad an audience as possible. Um, But we left room for other voices who come after us and for things that, um, for other things that people learn. Like we know, we've just barely started to scratch the surface, um, but what we did was lay some groundwork for other people. And so if folks are out there using the guide to do discovery sprints, or if they are doing discovery sprints of their own, um, we do have a section in the guide for case studies. Um, As we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, sometimes it's hard for USDS to share some of our case studies, Um, but we do have a section there for people to be able to contribute and um, to be part of a larger conversation. And I think Jen and I would both love to see um, and hear about what other people have done or tried. And so this is is something that we wrote um, to kind of give back to you know, our organization and for folks who might be um, discovering this stuff later. But I think that this, there are always learnings happening and there are always people who are coming after us and there's like the stuff, this work is cyclical. Um, so we'd love to encourage folks to contribute and um, to tell us their stories as well. Yeah, I definitely echo Kat there with sharing um you know, your own stories of your experiences with discovery sprints. Um, documentation is so important, um, and we really see this as a living document. The other thing I would add is, I think when we talk about what it means to understand the problem, sometimes we find that teams might be 
a little bit narrowed in their scope. And so something that's really important to keep in mind is that, you know, to look at the problem from all different perspectives, right? And one of the things that we really try to explain in the Discovery Sprint Guide is who should be, who you should talk to, right? And who you should consider in this space. And so um, looking at it from like a systems level perspective, right? It's the people who are supporting the work, the people at the call center, leadership of the agency, um, the people who are at the receiving end, um, sometimes their family members, right? Like um, we know that a handful of times, um, if it's someone who's elderly or someone whose language isn't first, um, first language isn't English, right? Um, it might be, it might, the, the service might have to fall on to a family member or a neighbor. Um, so to me, I, I really just want to leave with, um, like this work is so important, but, but it's so important just to understand everyone that, um, we're doing this for and to not forget that as we, um, as you kind of undertake this method and process. Jen, Kat, I want to I want to thank you both for taking the time out of your day to come and be on Civic Tech Chat. I I have no doubt folks are going to find some nuggets of wisdom to take into their own days as they listen to this episode later. Thanks so much for having us, Ryan. Thank you. It was great to be here and and to get to talk to Jen, who I don't get to see as much anymore, um, and also did just to talk about this project. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.